You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. One of my favorite stories uh, in the book of Exodus uh, is this really uh, strange battle that takes place between the Israelites and the Amalekites. Uh, If you're not familiar with this story, the Amalekites sort of ambush the Israelites as they are on the way to the promised land. And during the battle, we're told that Joshua directed the military forces of Israel down below while Moses stood atop of a hill with his arms raised holding the staff of God. Uh, And as the story progresses, you see that whenever his arms are outstretched and raised, the Israelites prevail in battle. But whenever he gets tired and his arms are lowered, uh, the Amalekites prevail in battle. So in order to uh, win against the Amalekites, two of Moses's companions, Aaron and Hur, They set Moses down on a rock and they stand on either side of him and sort of prop up his arms so that that his arms will be outstretched and he will hold this staff through the rest of the battle. And eventually uh, the Israelites win. Uh, It's kind of a strange story, but I always have appreciated the picture that it portrays of God's people working together to achieve God's purpose. I mean, Joshua is physically fighting against the enemy, uh, and Moses is standing with his arms outstretched to heaven, which is a posture of prayer in the ancient world. So Moses is fighting spiritually on behalf of his people, Uh, And then you have Aaron and Hur, who are not given the most glamorous of tasks. All they're doing is is holding up and propping up Moses's arms. Yet they are just as equally vital to achieving this victory. I I love that story uh, because no one is unimportant in that story. All of God's people are working together to achieve God's purpose. And as we turn our attention to the book of Acts this evening, that's precisely what we're going to see in the early church. The reality that Christ's body contains no one that is unimportant. That to be a part of the body of Christ means that you have roles and responsibilities within that body. And the more you understand your role and the more you're able to perform that role, the healthier our church will be. So let me read to us this evening from Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. It says that now in these days, the disciples were increasing in number And a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parnius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, uh, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, in these first verses in Acts chapter 6, uh, we see that, that as the church has become more and more established, uh, there is this evident need to develop more uh, and more infrastructure uh, within this body. Uh, it's becoming far too large for, for any one individual to manage or control everything that's going on. And so there, there's this need to develop specialized roles within the church to handle all of the, the vital functions of the church. So this evening, I want to look at each of the three roles that you see outlined in this story to help us see better that no one is unimportant in Christ's body. So, so first, we're going to look at the role of pastors, otherwise known as elders or overseers. Secondly, we're going to look at the role of deacons, who are the servants of the church. And then lastly, we'll examine the roles of, of those who are members of the church as well. So first, the role of pastors. And if you scan back through this story, uh, you first have to admit that, that nowhere in this pastor is, or nowhere in this passage is the term pastor or elder or overseer actually used. Uh, and for that matter, neither is the word deacon. But as you have here, the, the very first established church in the history of the Christian faith, uh, what, what I want to suggest to you is playing out in this story is you have the apostles and these men that are appointed to serve the uh, widows they are laying the groundwork for what will become these two offices of the pastor and the deacons. Uh, so even though you don't see either term uh, explicitly mentioned in Acts chapter 6, you still have men acting as sort of proto-pastors and proto-deacons as they are forming and establishing these two offices. So the apostles here in this story are modeling for you the role of a pastor. And these pastors have a problem. As the church has grown, uh, there have become these two different factions within the church, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And it's the widows of the Hellenist faction that are being neglected in the daily uh, food distribution. Now, at this point, 
Uh, just so you know where, where we're kind of at in the narrative, at this point in the life of the church, this congregation is pretty much made up of exclusively ethnic Jews. Very shortly, but, but not quite yet, the gospel uh, is going to be made available to the Gentiles and those who aren't descendants of Abraham. But right now, this church in Jerusalem is an ethnically uh, Jewish congregation, and this Jewish community is divided into two different groups. So you have the Hellenists, who are part of the uh, Greek-speaking Jewish diaspora, which means they're, they're basically just like Jewish refugees that have been scattered all around the world. Uh, and then you also have, as the name would suggest, you have the Hebrews who speak Hebrew and Aramaic. And these Jews are, uh, they, they're not scattered throughout the world like the Hellenists. They are native here to Jerusalem and Palestine. Now, regarding the Hellenists, uh, after the kingdom of Israel and Judah collapsed, the Jewish people scattered throughout all of the nations and living so far away from their, their homeland and their forefathers, uh, they, they came to speak Greek. Uh, Greek is kind of the... Uh, international trade language of the day uh, and was used uh, extensively throughout the ancient world, much like modern English is today. So these are Greek-speaking Jews, uh, but many of them, as they grow older, uh, they decide to move back to uh, Jerusalem in order that they can kind of be reminded of their Jewish heritage of their ancestors before they pass away. The problem, though, is if the husband passes away first, the widow that he leaves behind is often left to become very destitute or poor. She, she wouldn't have spoken Hebrew or Aramaic like the majority of the community around her, and her biological family would have lived in a very far away country. So these elderly women... Uh, if they're widows, they're often very poor and very needy, which is perhaps why so many of them were attracted or drawn to the early church as the Christians went out of their way to take care of the needs of others. So you've got the, the Hellenists, uh, but at the other end of the spectrum, you have the Hebrews who are native to Jerusalem and Palestine. Now, the Hebrew language at this point uh, is no longer spoken as kind of the home language. Uh, it's not the, the predominant language amongst the average Jew. It's really only spoken at religious services uh, in the synagogues. But the uh, Hebrews spoke a very similar Semitic language known as Aramaic, which would have been the language that Jesus spoke. Uh, and these Jews would have also known Greek because, as I said, Greek is a very prominent trade language. So they would have spoken uh, Greek as well. But these Hebrews often looked down on the Hellenists uh, as, as being sort of less pure or less Jewish than themselves 
because the Hellenists could only speak Greek and they couldn't speak Arabic or, or Aramaic or Hebrew. So the apostles, uh, as I said, they're acting as the early pastors of this church. Uh, they have a dilemma of how to care for these neglected uh, Hellenist widows. And given insight from the Holy Spirit, they realize ultimately there is a need to create a role within the church, uh, the office of deacon, to meet the needs of these widows. So, So what are we to learn about the role of a pastor from this story? couple things. First, think that this story teaches us that we need to recognize that pastors have limited time. Pastors have limited time. They only have so much energy and resources. Uh, and there's only so much effort that they can devote to various ministries. Uh, If they devote themselves to everything going on within the church, then they're not going to accomplish anything very well. Note that there are even 12 apostles leading this early church, and even with 12 men, they still can't accomplish everything that needs to be done. Now, that doesn't mean that just because somebody is a pastor— that they can use their role as an excuse not to get their hands dirty or do uh, any kind of nitty-gritty physical labor. Uh, But it does mean that they shouldn't be the only ones or maybe even the primary individuals performing those tasks. If, If a pastor is the only individual ministering to others within the church, Inevitably, he is going to burn out, and that church is certain to fail. I cannot be the only one visiting the sick, or calling the shut-ins, or driving to the nursing home, or to the hospital. I can't be the only one serving the poor, or reaching out to our community. Ministry within the church requires the entire church. Uh, I, I think that understanding that pastors have a limited time also means understanding the benefit that comes with having multiple pastors, be, be they paid or bivocational. Uh, the model that you see here among the apostles is a team of 12 dedicated men focusing on the ministry of the church. I mean, again, 12 men are struggling to keep up with all of the workload involved in pastoral ministry. Uh, I think that means that certainly one man couldn't have kept up with this workload himself. Uh, The more ministry you realize that needs to happen within a local church, the more you realize the need for qualified pastors and elders and overseers to accomplish that ministry. So pastors have limited time. Additionally, though, there's a need to to recognize that they should also have a limited focus. Verse 2 notes that the apostles say, 
it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. This tells you that though uh, there are a number of ministries that should exist within the local church, a number of ministries that can and should exist, pastors can't and shouldn't try to devote their time and energy to every ministry. Pastors must prioritize what is important for the sheep of their congregation, which, as it says here, is praying and the ministry of the word. While it is good for a pastor to be out in the community, it is also good for a pastor to be diligently studying in his office preparing to preach. Preparing to preach is like preparing a meal. If someone's not in the kitchen cooking and the congregation isn't being properly fed, then they aren't going to have the strength and the stamina needed to make it through the week. They're going to be malnourished and starving and ill-equipped to reach those outside the church with the gospel. A pastor who who doesn't prioritize prayer and and the ministry of the word, or or a pastor who's not allowed to prioritize those ministries, uh, inevitably he's going to end up serving sermons to the congregation that are the spiritual equivalent to TV dinners or cold leftovers, Uh, and everybody will suffer as a result. So that's the role of pastors that you see in the early church. Uh, Secondly, let's look to the role of deacons. Uh, Again, the the term deacon is not explicitly mentioned in this passage, but it's clear that this is the, the role in the office that the apostles are establishing in these verses. So let's look at the kind of individuals called to do the work of a deacon. And the kind of work these deacons are called to do. Verse 2, again, says the apostles, uh, they, uh, have set, the apostles, uh, they have the church uh, set aside, uh, it says seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. So what kind of uh, caliber or of individuals are being called to the work of a deacon here. Well, you see that it's the same kind of, or the same caliber of men who are called to serve in the office or role of a pastor. Morally speaking, uh, there shouldn't be any difference between those serving in the role of a deacon or those serving as pastors or elders or or overseers. Notice that uh, the kinds of men you see listed here. Let, Let me give you a couple of examples. This list starts off with Stephen and Philip. We'll talk more in depth about each of these men in the coming uh, weeks, but both of these men are very capable men. Later in this chapter, 
Stephen is soon going to be stoned by members of the local synagogues. But even in his death, he's going to use his own stoning as an opportunity to boldly proclaim the gospel to his enemies. And in just a couple of chapters, Philip is going to be responsible for spreading the gospel as far away as to the royal court of Ethiopia. These are the kind of individuals that were called to do the work of a deacon in the early church. These are the kinds of individuals that we should seek out and call today as well. Though the roles of a deacon differs from that of a pastor, they should be every bit as spiritually mature and full of wisdom and the spirit of God. Deaconing, as you see in this passage, is not for the faint of heart. So so that's the the kind of individuals called to do the work of deacon. But but let's also see the kind of work these deacons are called to do. While the apostles are devoting themselves to prayer and preaching, the spiritual matters of the church— These deacons are called to devote themselves to meet the physical and practical needs of the church. They're going to be serving tables and taking care of the widows. Uh, The term deacon itself, if you know, uh, it's actually just the Greek word for servant. I think we kind of do ourselves a disservice by not just translating that word into English, So we can better understand what a deacon is meant to do. They are the servants of the church. Pastors serve by leading the church. Deacons lead by serving the church. Now, as I said earlier, there are some deep cultural divides going on in this early congregation between the Hellenists and the Hebrew factions. Uh, Historically, those two groups would have worshipped in completely separate synagogues. They wouldn't have even worshipped together. And now you have these deacons being appointed to help overcome these long-standing divisions. So, So the work and the ministry of these deacons should in no way be underestimated. Uh, It's incredibly valuable and instrumental work. Uh, And it's going to be difficult work, but it's not the same work as a pastor. If both the pastors and the deacons are trying to do the same thing and are both trying to uh, vie for for dominance or uh, take over leadership within a church, if both of them are trying to spiritually lead the church, then there's going to be a lot of practical and physical needs of the congregation that are going to slip through the cracks as a result. Humans are both spiritual and physical beings and therefore need pastors to lead them spiritually and deacons to serve them in all kinds of physical and practical and tangible ways. And when pastors and deacons both recognize their respective roles, 
everyone is going to benefit as a result. So we've talked about the role of pastors. We've talked about the role of deacons. Lastly, in this story, let's look to the role of members. As you study this passage, it becomes clear that just as pastors cannot do all of the given ministry uh, within a church, neither can deacons. There there are significant responsibilities that rest upon uh, each of the members of this congregation as well. And, And as you study this text, you see members are supposed to be both attentive to what's going on within the church and active within the church themselves. They're supposed to be both attentive and active. So first, members are supposed to be attentive to what is going on within the church. How is it that the apostles understand that there is a need to better serve the widows of the Hellenists? Well, it's because there arose to the apostles a complaint. The congregation saw this very key demographic of their church uh, and that it was being neglected, and they brought it to the attention of the apostles. Now, that shouldn't give you a license to complain just for the sake of complaining, uh, and and it can't just be an excuse to push off work Uh, just to the pastors, but you see that this congregation here is very attentive and very aware of the needs of their own body. If you read off all of the names of these men that they select, you'll notice that they choose seven Hellenists to serve as deacons. All seven of these guys have Greek names. It's the Greek-speaking widows that are being underserved, so they choose appropriate deacons to compensate for that negligence. Now, if you have ever read through the New Testament, you'll know that scattered throughout the Gospels and the Epistles are all kinds of one-another passages. Time and time again, you see that phrase appear over and over saying, bear one another's burdens, uh, encourage one another, be at peace with one another, be of the same mind as one another. Uh, If you skim through the New Testament, uh, there are actually a hundred passages that give commands for Christians relating to one another. But, But those passages aren't just saying how pastors should relate to one another. They're not just saying how deacons should relate to one another. They they speak to how all Christians are commanded to relate to one another. And and through them, you start to to realize that that Christianity is not a a sort of top-down religion where pastors are the sole authority of their congregation and should be the source and focal point of all of the ministry that takes place within the church. The Christian faith is more akin to this network or web of all kinds of brothers and sisters uh, who are interconnected with one another in Christ. Christ followers should regularly 
be in attendance at church, building relationships with other believers, and keeping their finger on the pulse of what's going on in in order that they could be aware of and attentive to the needs of those in the local church. That's what we see going on in Acts chapter 6. The the congregation here is told to select men of good repute and who were full of the spirit uh, and wisdom. The only way that this congregation knew who those men were, who who was of good repute and who were men that were full of the spirit and wisdom, the, the only way the congregation knew who these men were is because they've actually already spent time with them. They've already been actively involved in ministry with them. They've already established relationships with these men. They are already aware of their character. A church will always be healthiest when when it's, it's members, not just the pastors, not just the deacons, but when all of the members are attentive and aware of the needs within the congregation and are aware and able to appoint godly individuals to help solve those needs. So members should be attentive and aware of what's going on within the church, but also they should be active within the church themselves. Notice that that it's not the apostles who appoint these deacons. They, They don't choose these deacons unilaterally, uh, it's the congregation that selects these men and set them before the apostles and lay their hands upon them and pray for them. The, The congregation is involved in every step of this process. If you are called to be a follower of Christ, then you are called to be a member of a local church within that body of Christ. None of the work and none of the ministry that we see in the book of Acts is taking place outside of the the confines of the local church. It's the church appointing deacons to serve their widows. And it's, it's the members of this church that, that are actively involved in that process of deacon selection. So, so if you are called to be a follower of Christ, then you are called to be a member of a local congregation within that body of Christ. And you are called to be an active member within that congregation. I'm sure that the majority of this congregation that we're reading about They weren't widows themselves or in danger of becoming a widow anytime soon. Yet the apostles, it says that they summoned the full number of the disciples. That is is the entire congregation. They summoned all of them to assist in overcoming this problem at hand. I think that far too many churches have those faithful few, the, those people that, that only make up 20% of the congregation, but do 80% of the work. Uh, maybe I'm even talking to many of those faithful few. 
But, but that is not how the body of Christ ought to be. That there is far too much work to be done for either pastors or even pastors and deacons to accomplish on their own. A, a healthy church means a church whose membership is meaningful and a church where all of the members are actively involved. Now, that doesn't mean that all members need to be involved in all things. That doesn't mean that if you're a member of a church, you have to go to every function of the church. That, that doesn't mean if you're not physically able to be involved that you're being irresponsible or you're not taking your membership seriously. But, but it does mean that as much as possible, you should use the skills and the giftings that the Lord has given you and actively put them to use within the church. So we've talked about the role of pastors, the roles of deacons, uh, the role of members. Uh, and we've seen that, that ultimately Christ's body contains no one unimportant. Uh, I want to end by, by turning your attention back to that story that I began with, uh, with the battle between the Israelites and the Amalekites. Uh, I said uh, that, that it was a picture that portrayed all of God's people working together to achieve God's purpose. Uh, you had uh, Joshua fighting below, you had Moses praying up above, and Aaron and her are assisting Moses. But I want to draw your attention on what was actually at the very center of everything going on in this battle. As Moses outstretched his arms, he's holding the staff of God, which has been a sign throughout that Exodus story of God's power and God's presence. So you have Moses and Aaron and her doing their part to lift up this staff. And you have Joshua and his men who at any point during battle could look up to see that staff. And it's a reminder to all of the God who is actually fighting on behalf of his people. Moses' outstretched arms weren't the reason for their victory. Joshua's military might's not going to win them that battle. It was the power and the presence of the Lord symbolized in this staff. It was the power and the presence of the Lord. So, so no matter what your role within the church, whether you are a pastor whether you are a deacon, whether you are a member, or if you aspire to any of those roles, uh, if you have any hope whatsoever of accomplishing your given responsibilities, you first have to look to God, who is actively at work fighting on our behalf. It's the cross of Christ and that good news of Jesus' death, 
his burial, his resurrection that must be at the very center of every part of the church. That the gospel must be what we hold up with outstretched arms and it must be what we look up to during the heat of battle because without the power and the presence of Christ at the heart and the center of our churches, nothing that pastors or deacons or members could, could ever hope to achieve will have any kind of lasting or eternal impact on the world without Christ and the gospel uh, and, and the power and presence of the Lord at the center of it all. Let me pray.